to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The first words of any story are crucial. The first words of any story are absolutely crucial. Think about it for a moment. They hold immense power as they frame and define the rest of the narrative. So what I want to do this morning is I want to play a little game with y'all, okay? Play a little, little give back, okay? All right? I'm going to state some opening lines to some classic narratives, and I want to see if you can guess where they come from just from the opening sentence, all right? You ready? First one's pretty easy. Ready? Call me Ishmael. Nope. Moby Dick. Good. All right. Somebody's paying attention this morning. Fantastic. Richard Bentley's Moby Dick. Oh, boy. Okay. Let's go a little deeper now. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities. Fantastic. Okay. We're going to make it a little bit harder. Only one person could get this at the 8 a.m. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. No. Well, Tolstoy, yep, Anna Karenina, yeah, okay, last one. This is going to separate the real cultural elitists from those of us who are just posers. <laughs> a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Star Trek. St oh, Star Trek, oh. Deacon, Matt, my goodness. Oh, that hurts. We will have absolution after this, so there's good news. All right. So first lines are more than words, right? They're, they're, they're what set the stage for the journey that we're all going to embark upon. The writer Ernest Hemingway had a fascinating way in which he said he would start his writing. He said before he would begin, he would remind himself that all he needed to do was to write down one true sentence the truest sentence that he knew. And from that, everything else would just flow. For Hemingway, the first words, and the first scene for that matter, are key for the rest of the story. And so for that reason, I find that the Gospel of Mark is rather interesting. Because you see, unlike Matthew, who begins his Gospel story with this long genealogy and then the nativity scene, and unlike Luke, who starts with this formal introduction in his own version of the birth narrative, and unlike John, who begins with an ethereal poem about light coming into the world, Mark begins rather tersely with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then, without any introduction to his characters, he opens his scene with a baptism. Jesus' baptism. Now that's interesting to me. That's captivating. It's very much intentional. It's as if Paul is, or I'm sorry, Mark is saying, pay attention to what's going on here because Jesus' baptism is more significant than you realize. There's more to it than what meets the eye. Last week, I shared with you all that we have ended the Christmas season. The decorations are hopefully put away. We're not putting hearts on our Christmas tree for Valentine's Day. We've packed them away. We've ended Christmas, and we've now entered into the epiphany season. And that word epiphany just simply means revealing. We're now in a season where Jesus' nature, his identity, his purpose, is being revealed to us through our lessons. And so in Mark 1, we have a revealing. 
Mark shows us through Jesus' baptism something very profound and insightful about Jesus. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack Jesus' baptism. We're going to look at what's being revealed here about him. And as we're doing so, what I want us to also ask ourselves is, what does Jesus' baptism enlighten us about our own baptism? As Paul says in the letter to the Galatians, for as many of you who were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. In other words, what's true about Jesus' baptism shines light about our own baptism. And so what I want to do is I want to work through this baptism by looking at the three persons of the Trinity that are present in this scene. I want to look at the sun in the water, the spirit like a dove, and the voice from heaven. And to the, the few theologians and church historians out there, namely the two in the back and one up here on the chancel, yes, I stole that from a line from um, Lancelot's Andrew's sermon on Whit Sunday. I'm sorry for plagiarizing, but I swear that's it. Everything else I got from ChatGPT. <laughs> so, the sun in the water, the spirit in the dove, or the spirit like a dove, and the voice from heaven. Looking back at verse 9, Mark says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Now, there are two things that we need to note here. First, to begin with, it's kind of unusual that Jesus is receiving this baptism at all. Why is that unusual? Because if we were to jump back to Mark or to verse 4, Mark tells us that John was baptizing a baptism of, the, of repentance for sins, a baptism of repentance from sin. Well, one of the most important aspects of Jesus' nature is that Jesus was sinless. So what business does he have doing this baptism at all? What does Jesus need to repent of? Well, the quick answer is nothing. There's nothing he needs to repent of. The longer explanation is that the whole of Jesus' ministry centered around the fact that he, as God, took on human flesh so that he could redeem us. You see, he had to become one of us to save us from our sins. Well, if you're going to become one of us, truly one of us, then you have to take on all the parts of us, even the broken sinful parts. And so even though Jesus himself never sinned, he identifies with our sinfulness through his baptism. Now, some of you might be scratching your head saying, well, how in the world does that even work, Father Chase? I'm glad you asked. You can think of it like this, and this is an analogy, so it means at some point this analogy is going to fall apart, but I think it helps if we think of it like this. A couple of years ago, I had a friend in Tallahassee who was a huge FSU Seminoles fan, you know, the Knowles, go Knowles. So his family, everything was garnet and gold. And one year they decided they were going to go to their big rivalries game with uh, the Clemson Tigers. Unfortunately for my friend, uh, he was not able to find seating with all the other Knowles fans. And so he found himself in a sea of orange, surrounded by tigers all around him. Even more unfortunate than that, there was a group of guys who were clearly partying a little bit too much before the game, and they were giving them all kinds of grief. And this wasn't your normal heckling. They were being obscene. They were you know, saying foul words, throwing stuff at them. It got so bad that security actually had to drag these guys out of the game. Well, at that point, one of the other Clemson students came up to my friend and his family, and he said, hey, 
I just want to apologize for what those guys did. That's, that wasn't right. They had no business doing that. I'm really sorry they put you through all that. At that point, my friend's spouse, his wife, said, oh, honey, you didn't do anything. You have nothing to apologize. That was those guys. But the Clemson student said something interesting. He said, no, I, I didn't do it. I didn't participate. But I'm a Clemson, too. And those are my people. I'm one of them, and they're one of me. And so I want to apologize on their behalf. And that's interesting. Because here's someone who didn't commit the sin. He didn't commit the act. But he chose to bore the weight of the sin. He chose to identify himself with the crowd. And so he apologized on behalf of the other Clemson fans. Well, on a much larger scale, without actually committing any sin, Jesus' baptism identifies him with our sin and our brokenness. And this becomes really important to us when Jesus goes to the cross because he carries the weight of our sin with him, even though he himself never committed a sin. He identifies with one of us. Now, what makes this really good news for you and me is the second thing we need to notice here. And the second thing we need to notice is that what Mark says immediately after Jesus comes out of the water, when he says he saw heaven being torn open. Now, that line probably doesn't mean much to us, and we probably would glance over it and not think twice about it. But if we're Jewish, we know that there is something deeply, deeply symbolic there. You see, Mark tells us that Jesus' baptism took place in the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is an important place for Jewish folks. It's the place where Joshua led the people of Israel out of the wilderness and into God's promised land. And the way he did so is that God tore open the Jordan River and allowed the people to cross over on dry land, just like he did with Moses and the Red Sea. It was this miraculous event that happened in the life of Israel. Well, it's no coincidence that Jesus chose this exact spot to be baptized. He's saying there's another story happening here at the Jordan. And oh yeah, by the way, the name Jesus and the name Joshua are exactly the same in Hebrew. It's a long story of how we turn Joshua into Jesus in English, but in Hebrew, it's the same word, same name, Yahshua, God saves. This is Mark's way of saying that these two stories, they mirror one another. The big difference, though, is this time the waters aren't torn apart. It's heaven itself that is being torn open. This is Mark's way of saying that Jesus not only is one of us, but he brings the fullness of heaven with him. If Joshua led the people out of the wilderness into the promised land, then Jesus is leading us out of the wilderness of sin into his heavenly kingdom. In many ways, Mark is starting to reveal to us that Jesus became like one of us so that we then can become like him. He has taken on all of our sinfulness so that we can take on all of his heavenly righteousness. That's incredible, but that's just the first scene. Moving on now, let's look at the spirit like a dove. Spirit like a dove. And the thing that I want us to note here is that the spirit descended upon Jesus. And again, probably, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to us. So to understand what's going on here, we need to turn to our Acts lesson in Acts chapter 10. There's this verse that Paul or Peter explains what's going on here. Peter in Acts 10 is preaching at a guy named Cornelius' house. And he's preaching and he says in verse 38, 
that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Now, when did that happen? It happened here in Mark chapter 1 at his baptism. Now, again, that doesn't seem that, that significant. Anointing, who cares? Well, it's significant when we start to think about who was anointed before Jesus. As we look throughout the Old Testament, there are two types of people that were anointed. Kings and priests. And so this spirit descending like a dove is Jesus' anointing as both our king and our priest. And this is not just any ordinary anointing. In the Old Testament, a king or a priest would be anointed primarily by a prophet. For example, um, Samuel anointed King Saul and King David. And, and Moses anointed Aaron the high priest. If this was a normal anointing, John the Baptist would have been the person who anoints Jesus. But this is no ordinary anointing. Instead, this time, it's the Holy Spirit that anoints Jesus. This is God's way of saying, this is my king. This is my priest. And this is no ordinary king and priest. As John would later say in Revelation, this is the king who is above all kings. As the book of Hebrews would show us, this is the high priest par excellence. This is God's chief king and chief priest. Now that's good news for us. Because as we look out there in this world, I think we are in desperate need of some good leadership. Especially when it comes to political and spiritual leadership. I don't know about you, but when I read through the news, I can't help but think to myself, wouldn't it be great if we just had one leading figure who wasn't tangled up in investigations or lawsuits or, or uh, misconduct scandals? I know that's what I think. Well, the good news is Mark says we have one, and his name is Jesus. He's both our political and spiritual leader. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and our great high priest. He's a high priest who can sympathize with all of our faults, all of our flaws, but at the same time will never let us down. Mark says that Jesus is the leadership we're looking for. He is the integrity that we are deeply seeking after. Jesus is our king and our priest. Okay, last one. The voice from heaven. Now listen to what the voice from heaven says. The voice said, you are my son with whom I love and I am well pleased. Now, that's a pretty astounding, astonishing verse, if you ask me. And there's a whole lot that we could unpack from those few simple words. But what I really want to focus on is that last part, whom I love and am well pleased. Because I find that to be rather interesting. It's interesting because God says this, God the Father says this about his son before Jesus starts his ministry. Think about it. Before Jesus goes off into his trials and to his temptation, before Jesus performs a, a single miracle or preaches his amazing sermons, before Jesus faces any persecution or goes to the cross on our behalf, God the Father declares before all people, this is my son, whom I love and am well pleased. Before Jesus could do anything that would, would hint that he has somehow earned God's love and favor, God declares this of him. Now, if you would ask me, it would make a whole lot of sense that God the Father had said this at Jesus' crucifixion. At the very end of his ministry, when he had done all these good things, where he'd say, look at my son, look at all that he's accomplished. I am so pleased with him. I love him so much. 
But before Jesus even lifts a finger, God declares his perfect love, regardless of what he's done for him. My friends, that is huge news for us. That is good news for us. Because if that's true of Jesus, then it's also true of ourselves. The Apostle Paul tells us three times in three different letters that like Jesus, we have been adopted as children of God. How do we get adopted? We are adopted through faith and our own baptism. And so that means that the love that God pours out on his son Jesus is the same love for us, a love that is not based on our performances, not based on our achievements, and it's also not based on our ability to avoid moral failings. It is perfectly given to us before we do a single thing. At our very own baptism, God the Father declared of you and of me, you are my son or you are my daughter with whom I love and I am well pleased. You know, so many of us travel through this world and we crave affirmation. We crave love, identity, and purpose. And we look for it in all sorts of different places. We look for it in our jobs, in our relationships, in our achievements. But Mark says, we already have it. God has already given us that love. God has already given us that identity and that purpose. Now, does God delight when we do good things? Absolutely. He delights when we imitate his son. He delights when we follow his word. He delights when we seek after his righteousness. But none of that, and hear me very clearly, none of that earns his love. He delights in those things because he knows that it's good for us. He delights in them because he loves us. And he knows when we do those things that we're living the kind of life we were created to have. But it doesn't earn his love. And not doing those things doesn't take away that love either. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. It is freely and perfectly given to us. So let's go back to that original question. What does Jesus' baptism reveal about him? Well, first it reveals that he is fully one of us, that he embraced our suffering, our pain, our brokenness, our sin. And the second, it reveals that he is our anointed true king and priest. And third, it reveals the father's unconditional love for him, a love that can't be earned or taken away. And the good news is our own baptism mirrors these truths. And so through our baptism in Christ, he became one of us so that we can become like him. In Christ, we have a king and a priest, a leader that transcends human imperfection, who embodies grace, truth, and love. And in Christ, God declares that we are loved and accepted unconditionally. Now that's a true way to start a magnificent story. It is a way for, for, for Mark to show us who Jesus truly is and who we truly are because of it. What a revelation to receive at the start of our epiphany journey. In a few moments, we're going to renew our baptismal vows. I'm going to get you all a little bit wet. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Get to splash some water. And as, you're doing, as I'm doing that, I want you to ask yourself this question. What am I doing with my baptism? I've shared this story before, but I think it's worth sharing again. Years ago, I had a friend named Leslie who was traveling uh, across the Camino de Santiago that goes between France and Spain. 
And along the way, she took a little water break, and as she looked up at one of the signs, there was some graffiti written on it in French that translated that question. What are you doing with your baptism? And she felt like that was so symbolic of life. All of us are on a journey. And some of us might be exhausted. Some of us might not know in what direction we're headed. Some of us might not know uh, where we should be going. But the question that God asks us this morning is, what are you doing with your baptism? Our baptism was never meant to be some sort of static event, some archaic memory. Jesus' baptism launched him into his ministry, his ministry of redemption and renewal of the world. Our own baptism does the same thing. It launches us on a journey with Jesus. And so as you're having the waters of baptism sprinkled on you and you're renewing your vows, let's remember that we are marked people, that just like Jesus, we have been set apart for God's purposes. Let's embrace this identity. May our lives be a continual expression of the grace we received and the transformation that Jesus has begun in us. Let us remember our baptism. Amen.